It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, joined by the second most handsome doctor in North America. He's back, ladies and gentlemen. He's back. <laughs> Dr. Austin Baraki, what's going on, man? Hey, I'm doing all right. Uh, I guess I am back from a from a short one-week break hiatus we had, huh? I know My DMs overfloweth. They were like, but he expected a podcast. They they did they did, and then also when Derek was on for 195, they were like, "Where's is Austin? Okay." I'm like, <laughs> I mean, as far as I know, unless you know something I don't. Yep, this is episode 196. We're going to be talking about training dosage, how to dose your training, and uh, some important implications on how we think about training. Uh, this is actually one of those topics that actually that spans from not only like. Uh, fitness professional, but also to healthcare professional, because this definitely applies whether you're a physical therapist, whether you're a physician uh, or other sort of provider, you got to think about this if you're actually going to talk about exercise and think about how exercise affects your patients. But before we get into that, uh, Austin, you know, are you, are you still lifting? We haven't seen an Instagram <laughs> post in a while, like everything okay down there? Yeah, I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm doing fine. I'm, you know, living my life like, like normal people do, I suppose. Um, I'm definitely lifting, uh, not still not really doing much dedicated powerlifting stuff. I'm, I'm, uh, in the gym still about six days a week doing generally less specific work, generally lighter stuff, generally less interesting things. Um, and I've been in the pool typically on average two to three times a week and then doing some stuff on the bike, uh, the, the air, uh, echo bike, but, um, the pool stuff is actually interesting just because of how much um, more quickly it is feeling better. <laughs> um, it's it just, there's been some interesting observations because like, just as an example, um, you know, my leg strength and my lat strength, I don't think have ever been uh, in, in question um, from squatting and deadlifting and rowing and things like that. But man, like getting back in the pool and, and pushing some, whether it be some speed, speed work or some longer stuff, um, the first things to go, my lats would get super tight and, and tired and fatigued. And then same with the, the legs, they would just, you know, feel pretty smoked. And so, um, it's definitely just obviously very, very different adaptations that are, that are uh, required for, for the repetitive longer distance stuff or, or moving fast through the water compared to, um, squatting up a weight or, or picking something up off the floor. So that's been cool to feel, um, better and better each session that I do that. And so I've started to push a little bit of sprint work and that's been going well too. Yeah. I've seen a lot of water on your Instagram stories <laughs> and I didn't know if you were trying out for the second season of the boys, you're going to be the deep, <laughs> like you were going <laughs> to, but all right, then no, it looks cool. I, I agree. I've had a similar experience with moto. Um, yeah. just like, I'm like my forearms and grip strength have never been as strong as they are now, but the idea of like holding on to a, what's effectively a bucking Bronco attached to, you know, an engine that is far superior in power output than any Bronco that has yeah. ever been created uh, for like 15 or 20 minutes around a constantly evolving course with obstacles designed to test <laughs> your skill. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a weird thing. Right. And people are like, Oh, you need to get stronger. I'm like, I don't think strength, if we define that as like maximum strength output, I don't think that needs to get any better, but certainly like strength, endurance, um, skill, stuff like that. And just um, movement economy. You know, it's just one of those things that, that you got to do it, uh, to, to have it. A lot uh, of things that are simply not tested in the course of powerlifting training and thus not adapted or selected for at all. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. And I think just the more my, my activity kind of range expands, the, the more I can appreciate that if I weren't interested in powerlifting and for people who are not like going to go compete, uh, particularly, um, as something that brings them great joy. 
I do not know that I would restrict or compromise my training adaptations based on uh, some arbitrary importance placed on SBD. And there's just so much more to do, you know, we we see people do this all the time, particularly when you get bit by the bug early on. Right. And you want to get as strong as you can, as fast as you can. And so, you know, see people who restrict themselves, hyper-specialize early squat bench deadlift. They don't do anything else. They issue all (laughs) conditioning, which is a topic that Alan has been actually uh, putting a lot of content on recently since he's been getting back into, to, to running as well. Uh, just another activity in a different way. And, um, they end up really kind of artificially limiting themselves very early on in the training career, which is probably not great, uh, for, for long-term, as we've said before, like athletic development in general, um, adaptations in general, health stuff, even arguably would be better off with, uh, with a broader base of things, uh, earlier on. Yeah. Yeah. If I had a wish for like trainees, it would be to develop the broadest base of physical development possible. And then if there's something that like turns your crank, catches your fancy, whatever that you're going to go full send into like, great, let's do that periodically as needed. You know, but on the other hand, if it's like a recreational pursuit, I don't know if we need to like upend everything just to like, just to, just to spe- uh, maximize performance in that one domain. Anyway. Yeah, for sure. I have, I also have one other uh, announcement that I didn't All right. tell you about this. So I, I uh, just uh, took a, another new job. <laughs> oh, nice. Um, and so it is a position at a medical school where I am here to be teaching with their first year and second year medical students. Um, so my current job is strictly clinical uh, in the hospital setting where I have third year and fourth year medical students um, who rotate with me as well as first year, second year, third year uh, residents who are postgraduate uh, uh, trainees. And so this posi- I've always had an interest in what's called preclinical education, meaning medical students who are still kind of in the classroom setting and learning before they go out and do their rotations. And so I caught wind of an opportunity in town here. And so um, I just found out about that yesterday, that that's going to work out and move forward. So I'll be with first year medical students and second year medical students all the way through my third year, fourth year, and all my residents as well. So teaching the full spectrum of medical trainees, which I'm uh, pretty excited about. Are you the strongest teacher in North America? <laughs> I think so until somebody proves us otherwise that I'm ready to make that claim, but, uh, let, let the challenger (laughs) rise. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. (laughs) Avail yourself. No, uh, (laughs) very cool. Congratulations. Yeah. That's, uh, that'll be fun. I always thought like, what, what could I teach to like med students? Right. Like if I was going to actually teach something and feel very comfortable about it, Mm -hmm. I would feel comfortable teaching like exercise prescription or like behavior change counseling with respect to exercise or dietary pattern change or any, anything like that. Uh, but then if, if they started asking me about what if this person has this particular pathology and start like quoting, you know, gene deletions and stuff like that, I'm like, <laughs> I'm out, I'm out guys. <laughs> Step one was a long time ago. I forgot most of that stuff. So yeah, no, that'll be good. That'll be good for your, like when you have med studs and, uh, and interns and stuff. And they're like, oh, isn't this like some sort of enzymatic deficiency that you just, you know, like why it happens and how oh, yeah. to treat it. I'll be, I'll be up on all that stuff. <laughs> now you'd be, yeah, you'd be ready. You'd be prepared. They can't get to teach. Yeah. That's cool. I love that. Um, yeah, I, we don't, people want to know about my prep for this meet. It continues to go on in a very unusual manner. This like. I, I fell on my dirt bike, which I know is surprising to actually absolutely no one. <laughs> and um, yeah, I jammed my other shoulder and that's been it. You know, it's weird. It doesn't actually hurt uh, to bench until the bar is at the very bottom. 
I, you know what hurts more is holding the bar for squats. I'm just, I'm like, that is uncomfortable. And it's not the shoulder I dislocated. It's the other one. So that's good. Um, so you're yeah. symmetric now. Yeah, really, really heading into this meet with a lot of momentum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it'll be fine. We'll just show up. It's just powerlifting. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it doesn't, doesn't actually matter. So we'll see. Uh, okay, we still have some seminars upcoming, some live in-person events. Uh, we'll be in Los Angeles next month. That's November of 2023. We have a very select few spots left. So if you're listening to this and you're on the fence and you want to come hang out with us for our two-day live health and performance seminar, uh, you can check that out. Uh, it's in Los Angeles next month. Like I said, the pain and rehab team has all, have an all new pain and rehab seminar that'll be uh, unveiled in January in Miami. Um, you can sign up for that. That'll be with Dr. Derek Miles, uh, Dr. Clouser, and Dr. Dickinson. Uh, so that'll be fun. And I think Chris Hugan is going to be there too. So Dr. Hugan, do you think it's? Do you think he introduces himself as Hugan or Hugens? Like huge. I don't have to come I, to find out. I would, I would if I if I had that name for sure. So that'll be Miami in January, and then we'll be in Atlanta in February of 2023 for another two day health and performance seminar. First time coming to Atlanta, so if you're in that area and you're interested, you can check that out. And then we'll be in New York at CrossFit South Brooklyn. Our friends over there hosting us once again. We'll be there in May of 2023. We'll be adding uh, probably a few additional dates throughout the year, but uh, that's what we have so far. So you can check that out in the link in the description below. All right. We're going to talk about training dose, but before that, some stuff has happened in the last two weeks. All right. Thing number one, this, this colorectal cancer screening, uh, uh, this new study that was in New England Journal of Medicine has been getting a ton of airtime, mainstream media, internet wackadoos, quacks, etc. <laughs> you know, um, Austin, you want to take people through like what this report came out and said, and what does it actually mean? Yeah, sure. Um, this we both got multiple questions about this, and as you said, it's been all over the place, both in the lay media and in the medicine uh, world. Typically, the headline that has been getting tossed around is something along the lines of like uh, colonoscopy doesn't work <laughs> to, to distill it for you know what it is typically used for as far as uh, screening to reduce the risk of, of colon cancer. Um, so this this paper was published in the New England Journal. Uh, about two weeks ago or so, um, at the beginning of October 2022, the title of it was Effective Colonoscopy Screening on the Risks of Colorectal Cancer and Related Death. Um, and so the abbreviation is the Nordic uh, trial, N-O-R-D-I-C-C. And, and it was a multinational study um, looking at men and women age 55 to 64 who had never been screened for colon cancer before in Poland, Norway, Sweden, and the Netherlands. And this was a trial where basically these patients were randomly assigned to two different groups. One group was invited to uh, undergo colonoscopy screening. So that was the intervention. The intervention was not actually doing a colonoscopy on them. It was inviting them to get screened. And this was done by a mailed letter. Um, I think it was mailed maybe a couple times, if I, if I recall. Uh, and then the other group uh, was not invited and therefore not screened for colon cancer. And so there was almost 85,000 uh, subjects, participants in this in the study, so fairly large. And so what they, the outcomes they were looking for was the risk of colorectal cancer and death from colon cancer after 10 to 15 years. And so this paper was published at the 10-year analysis mark, and there's going to be you know, presumably another analysis at 15 years um, that will come out in about five years. Uh, the other endpoint they looked at was just death from any cause at all, like all, all 
cause mortality uh, would be the, the medical term for that. And they analyze the data in a couple different ways. We don't need to get into the details of that um, uh, exactly. Uh, but it is worth noting that of those who were invited to be screened, who received the letters, about 42% of them actually underwent colonoscopy. So it's not that everybody who was invited actually underwent screening, but a relatively small fraction, about 42% of them actually underwent screening. And so of those people who did get their colonoscopy done, colorectal cancer was diagnosed in 62 people um, out of the group, which is 0.5% approximately. Uh, polyps or adenomas were removed in about 3,600 people, which is about a third of the uh, of participants who were, who were screened. And then as far as complications, uh, the procedures were remarkably safe. Uh, there was some bleeding after the polyps were removed in 15 people, which is about 0.13%, so pretty small, smaller than um, the number of people who were either diagnosed with cancer or who had polyps removed. And all of those episode, those 15 episodes of bleeding were able to be treated on the spot. Um, there are ways that the endoscopist can basically handle that bleeding. Um, and there were no other significant complications, like nobody's colon was perforated. There were no screening, you know, related deaths as a result of the, the colonoscopies or anything like that. And so at the 10 year mark, um, the people of the people who were invited to undergo screening, the rate of colon cancer was 0.98%. So about 259 people compared to 1.2% in the people who were not invited. It's about 622 uh, people there. Um, and so for folks who are comfortable with relative risk statistics, that relative risk was was 0.82%. It's about 18% reduction from a, um, absolute terms there. And so ultimately that calculation would spit out a, a, a conclusion that you would have to invite about 455 people to prevent a case of, of colon cancer. And as far as risks of colon cancer-related death, there was not huge differences there, nor were there huge differences in death from, from all causes. So again, the caveat here is that you're looking at these numbers through the lens of, of those who were invited, again, only about 42% of them underwent colonoscopy screening. They, they reanalyzed the data looking at of those who actually underwent screening compared to those who didn't. And of course, things looked better. Um, but there are some issues with that kind of an analysis. It turns it into more of an observational analysis because there may be reasons why people would actually pursue colonoscopy and or, or not that would not really be um, you know, handled by randomization um, as you would in a, in a randomized trial, right? Um, but what's really interesting about this, and so ultimately, since the differences were not massive between these uh, between these groups, people spun it and published, you know, their articles and, and discussed this as saying colonoscopy is um, disappointing. It's less effective than we thought at finding these things and, and dealing with them. It doesn't work. We can't justify this, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I don't know that that is an entirely accurate uh, assessment of what this paper shows, because again, this study was not looking at how effective is colonoscopy at this compared to not undergoing colonoscopy, but rather it's a study of how effective is mailing people letters to get screened compared to not doing that. Um, that's actually what the what the intervention was, and there are there are some interesting kind of caveats or nuances or whatever to to this to the study. So one, for example, is in the U.S. Um, that is not reflective of how colon cancer screening is typically done. In other words, a lot of the times, you know, in a primary care clinic setting, the doctor is having a conversation with the patient um, and discussing it and reminding them over time, and it's uh, uh, kind of emphasized in a different way rather than 
mailing somebody a letter and 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 that's kind of the the extent of the um, of the push for screening and so it it's kind of the, the the process is executed a bit a bit differently here the other uh, some of the other aspects are that um, a about a lot of gastroenterologists commented on this study saying that you know one of the metrics of quality I guess that that, that they use to tell whether somebody is competent at doing colonoscopies is ha- is their rate of detecting things like polyps this is called an adenoma detection rate and and about a third of people of the um, endoscopist in this study had a substandard uh, what's called an adenoma detection rate so they weren't really finding things at the rate that you would typically expect which raised questions about the quality of their scopes um, and then the last thing I would comment on is that we know from other randomized controlled trials that there are there are other ways to screen for colon cancer besides colonoscopy. One example is something called a sigmoidoscopy, which is kind of like a more limited colonoscopy. It does not go as far into the colon. It requires less intensive preparation, things like that. And there are randomized trials of flexible sigmoidoscopy that show both reductions in colon cancer risk as well as death uh, from colon cancer risk and death in general, which is quite good. And so... Um, some have suggested that, well, we can only really support doing sigmoidoscopies on people based on these data. And, and what's puzzling to me is that it, it, it's unclear to me how that seems like that would set that should set the floor of like, what's the lowest possible <laughs> efficacy of, of a colonoscopy, because a colonoscopy is the same thing as a sigmoidoscopy, you just go further into the colon. And so, so the only way it seems to me that a colonoscopy could be less effective than a sigmoidoscopy is if the colonoscopy was riskier, if it caused more harms. Um, and we did not see evidence of that in this study. There, there weren't more reasons why people died from the scope. There wasn't perforation. There weren't bleeding. So it's really quite puzzling to me how doing a, an abbreviated version of a colonoscopy could be demonstrated, proven to be effective for colon cancer incidence and death and all that. And then if you just go further into the colon, suddenly that benefit would disappear because you're passing through the same territory. And it does not seem that you're causing more harm by doing that either. So I'm not entirely sure how that shakes out. Um, there are there are other things that certainly could be discussed about this. But um, ultimately, um, I think that it it may be the case that colonoscopy in general, doing a, doing colon, colorectal cancer screening may be less effective than is traditionally thought. I don't know that I can conclude that from this this study um, necessarily. Rather, I think this I would feel comfortable saying that mailing people letters to invite them to get colonoscopy screening is not going to have a major impact on their risk of death. <laughs> um, it still seems to have a bit of, a, of, of an impact on their risk of developing colon cancer. Um, but uh, but that's kind of like the best conclusion <laughs> that I that I can draw. And, and, and um, I don't know how much this this changes from a practical standpoint. Um, there are, it, it is worth people knowing that there are multiple ways uh, that you can be screened for colon cancer. The sigmoidoscopy is one, colonoscopy is another. Um, there are other fecal CT testing polo, methods you know, that can be testing. used to test for certain um, uh, evidence of uh, uh, you know cancer related DNA in in the in the fecal uh, um, matter or blood detection things like that all of them have pros and cons that are well beyond the scope of this podcast and are things that you can discuss directly with your doctor when the time comes for that conversation to happen which for average for average risk people who don't have a strong family history or predisposing conditions of colon cancer would be around age 45 at present in the US if you 
have family history of colon cancer, or if you have a history of, you know, predisposing conditions like Crohn's or inflammatory bowel disease or something, it is going to be much sooner, earlier in life, probably should have already happened if you, <laughs> if yeah, somebody's yeah. already talked to you about this. Um, but those, those are conversations to have with your doctor. But, but I think that this, we have to be careful with this article, um, when it comes to concluding that, you know, colonoscopy doesn't work when that wasn't really the intervention being tested. Rather, it was uh, more a test of this approach to a screening program, like mailing people letters to do this, and then seeing what the uptake was, again, about 42%, and then seeing what the impact of that was. So you could argue that, hey, if I want to make a big impact on risk of death in the population, mailing people letters to do this, probably not the most potent way to impact risk of death in the population. Well, I was just going to start mailing people pamphlets on exercise and dietary yeah. pattern because i think i mean if they just knew <laughs> yeah that would help yeah yeah i i saw like when you sent me this paper or like the 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 results from the paper i was like huh not as effective as i thought but as i dug more and more into it i'm like oh they didn't really test like the efficacy of col you know colon colonoscopy for colon cancer you know risk reduction or prevention rather and detection uh it was more just like yo did our this public health sort of yeah an informative approach to that work. And it's like, yeah. Eh. yeah, interesting. All right. So get your colon cancer screenings. 45 uh, is the current start year uh, for average risk adults in the United States. Uh, and and there are different ways that you can go about it and talk about them with your doctor and go from there. Yep. Okay. Now, Austin, this has got to be near and dear to your heart because we're going to talk about chemistry for a second. This grinded grinded my gears because I saw a lot of this stuff. Uh, this was about mm, oh, a little under two weeks ago now. Uh, I, I, I'm sure you saw this. The, this organic chemistry professor from NYU ended up getting fired after 82 students from his 350-person uh, organic chemistry class signed a petition basically saying he made the test too hard. It was unfair. We didn't have the resources available. You know, they a lot of them had done poorly on the first test or, or whatever, and ultimately that was going to like portend a bad outcome uh, for the class, and so ultimately he got fired. Um, and and that whole thing, I don't really have an opinion on what transpired at NYU uh, or you know what they should or should not have done. But in the medical community, there were a bunch of hot takes on Twitter where people were like, "Oh, the med students these days are soft," and you know, we didn't ha do this back in my day. We just you know sucked it up and studied harder, whatever. And it's like, guys. It is a much different landscape right now to not only go through an undergraduate education, but also apply to professional school, like medical school, get in, matriculate, and then go to residency. The whole thing is different than what it was in the 70s, where you're like, I want to go to med school. And they're like, cool, you got money? And they're like, yeah. And then you get in. <laughs> I'm not saying it was like that, but it's it's harder now. It's certainly competitive, you know, much more competitive. Um, you know, the average science GPA for a matriculating student is 3.48. The average uh, overall GPA is like 3.8. Right. So you're getting A's and B's, mostly A's, some B's. And in a, a science course that matters, like organic chemistry uh, for your science GPA, if you got a C or a D or whatever, uh, that's no good. That is incompatible with you getting into medical school without like some remediation on some level. Like you had to take advanced chemistry courses just to bump your science GPA. And even still on your transcript, they're like, ooh, what's up with this C in organic chemistry? You're like, I don't know. Shit was hard, dude. Like you can't say that. Um, and so, you know, rather than like, I don't know, kind of, uh, decry the motivations or the work ethic of the students, it's not like they're trying to be, you know, poor students or do poorly on tests. 
the whole thing is the system is is messed up, right? The idea that you have to get an A or a B in a class that has no bearing on your clinical expertise later on as a physician or how good you are with patients. I mean, to me, that that seems wild. What we're trying to do basically that, you know, or they use organic chemistry as like a weeder course idea, right? You're like weeding out the people. And it's like, why though? I mean, my whole view on medical school and the medical education has been that it should be more like law school, let way more people in and then see what happens along along the way. That way we get a, a more diverse sort of clinical practice, you know, uh, 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 people practicing clinical medicine. Um, and then, you know, you're going to identify talent that that is developed later on in life, right? I, I don't know that if you get an A in organic chemistry, one or two, that you're going to be a great physician. All I know is that you got an A in organic chemistry. We know that even your test results from uh, standardized board exams throughout medical training and, you know, even later in the training process uh, don't really correlate to how good you are as a physician. So it's like, what are the odds that something in undergrad is going to co- correlate? So I feel bad for what happened to the professor. Apparently he wrote like this very influential organic chemistry text and he's like widely regarded by his peers being an actual expert and you know, he has been teaching for for you know, decades. And so the idea that all of a sudden one year he's like just lost his, his marbles seems unlikely. But the whole point is it's in a system where like, yeah, you have to have grade inflation. You have to, the, the students all have to get A's or B's and, <laughs> you know, it, it, and if they don't, that impacts their ability to get in med school later on. I feel like, I don't know how we change it, but I just, the idea that that the med students are soft, or you know, pre-med students are soft, and this and the other, this generation, rah, rah, shake my fist at the sky. It's like, dude, no, you're putting them in a, in a in a system that you know is messed up, and and I don't know how, how we can change it, but yeah, I kind of I kind of felt bad for the students. <laughs> yeah, I can see kind of where you're coming from on all of those things. It doesn't necessarily um, bother me that some students would fail a class that is hard. I think that that is something that is going to happen um, ne- almost ne- necessarily um, in order to, anyway, that's a, that's a whole separate conversation. <laughs> yeah. I, and, and I also hear what you're saying about it, not being predictive of, of clinical acumen and stuff like that way down the road. It would be, on one hand, it would be really nice if um, we could have some research or some data indicating like what the predictors actually are of, you know, top-notch clinicians. Um but then I think, what would the next step be? And it would just become similar to like the whole concept of teaching to the test. Suddenly those are the targets that then yeah, people yeah. chase. That's just where incentives would go and people would pursue those things. And it would probably just become a perverse thing in a different way. So yeah, it's, a, just, it's, a, it's a monster no matter what you do. <laughs> yeah, you just kick the can down the road, right? It's like, all right. So, I mean, the idea behind a science GPA, you know, uh, a minimum or cutoff or, or whatever is that, oh, if you have this high of grades, then you're likely to pass step one, right? Or MCAT. If you do X on the MCAT, you're likely to pass. It's step almost one. like a proxy for your ability to study and take a test. <laughs> I mean, right. So yeah. 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 I don't know. My whole take is that right now it is very, very difficult to get into medical school of all the pool that applies less than 10% actually matriculate in the United States. Um, and my thought would be let's, if we can expand the schools, let's get more people training to be healthcare professionals. And then that then basically you almost whittle them down as they go through whether, and and what I mean, whittle down, I don't mean like they drop out and, you know, end up being in something medical, uh, completely unrelated to medicine, but it's like, all right, well, maybe uh, being a physician is not for you. Maybe being a tech or maybe some some other healthcare role. 
hundred percent. Like if, if you're interested in it and you know, that's your passion, like, cool, there's a place for you. Let's, let's, let's you identify your talents and use them appropriately, but let's not like eliminate people's potential to, to be a healthcare professional just because you're drawing, you're drawing parallels to like athletic development systems. It sounds like. Yep. 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 I am. I am. I'm going back to what I know. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I just remember reading these takes by like people who went to med school like 30 years ago and they're like, oh, I don't organic chemistry. Well, Austin, yeah. how many times do you use organic chemistry in clinical practice? Uh, pretty rarely. I mean, Oh yeah, you're not talking about like then, benzene but... ring uh, reactions with various <laughs> halogens or what? No, come on, man. No way. Tri tricyclics is probably about as close as I get. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like the it's like you got to know this yeah, to be a yeah. doctor. It's like what medicine are you practicing? <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Let's talk about training dosage. All right. So this is a concept that I think you and Derek, Doctor Miles, um, started talking about, and then I mean we have we've obviously talked about this before, and the idea is that we are trying to give an individual the appropriate training dose that is tailored to not only their current tolerance, so like they can do it, they're well suited to it, it is matched to their fitness levels, their resources, et cetera, but also drives the adaptations that we're seeking, you know, and whether that's uh, a narrow spread of adaptations or a broad spread of adaptations, either way. Um, so the, the dosing is important. And, you know, overall, uh, that's kind of like the secret sauce in programming, right? People want to know, all right, how much, how much, how many sets, how many reps, how much, what's the rest periods? What's the exercise selection? And we're like, let's back up. Let's look at this instead of for the trees, let's look at the whole forest and the forest in this case is the training dose. So I think a good definition for like training dose, what is, uh, would be all of the factors that go into the external load when we use our fitness fatigue model of programming, which is that the external load gets uh, applied to the individual. They experience it in a particular manner, which we can measure as the internal load. And that drives both fitness adaptations and fatigue. Um, so the extra, all the factors that go into the external load would represent the training dose. Um, so that would be things like exercise selection, rep schemes, volume, proximity to failure, you know, rest periods, uh, duration of aerobic training, things of that nature. All of that would be the training dose. So it's like how much, and it's not just volume, but it's like how much of what, which is, and, and that the rest of the variables kind of tell you what the, what is, um, so yeah, we're trying to identify the correct dose that the individual can tolerate and thrive in, and then also generates the individual's responses. And I think the big thing here, so people are listening to this and are like, all right, we get it, Feigenbaum. This is not necessarily new information. It's like, yeah, that's true, but it also applies to like a pain and rehab situation. So people view like pain and rehab training, programming, whatever, as like this far removed sort of thing that you sometimes have to do from like general strength conditioning. And it's like, no, it's just a, you know, cousin. It's, it's the same thing, just in a different context. Um, so Austin, when you're thinking about training dose, do you ever go down the, the road of thinking like, all right, this is like a minimum effective training dose, or this is like the maximum effective training dose, uh, for an individual? Uh, I typically don't think about those concepts in particular, but I, I, I do to kind of um, reiterate a few things from our kind of introduction to this this topic is 
my bias, at least at this point in the conversation, is that training dose, this this concept that we're talking about, is is probably the most important training variable or like amalgam of training variables that there is. And and part of there are multiple reasons why this thought came to mind as a topic to discuss. And and I'll give just one example. Um, I was on a podcast recently. Um, a, a medical podcast that would, and the the subject was back pain and the clinical case that was presented was a middle-aged guy who works a generally sedentary job and doesn't do a ton of activity and then he like had to move a bunch of boxes in his garage and he had you know onset of back pain and so he's coming into the clinic and they were asking you know, can you discuss your approach to this this patient's case? He thinks he, you know, moved wrong or something like that, as people often do, right? And we see this in the same thing in the in the gym setting, even among lifters, if something might start to hurt, and they say, "Oh, I, I moved wrong." Um, and so, trying to, uh, and then from from my standpoint, uh, from our standpoint, from the standpoint of our rehab coaches, we look at this as most likely a dosage problem, right? Getting a sense of what is the person's baseline level of tolerance for external load um, or physical activity in general uh, compared to what did he try to do. And there was a sufficient mismatch there um, combined with the fluke bad luck stuff that sometimes happens uh, that resulted in the experience of pain. And then um, not only did dosage play a role when it came to the development of that that issue for that, you know, hypothetical patient, but then later on in the conversation, you know, they're asking me some questions and, and going back and forth in the conversation and they're, they're asking me things like, okay, so when it comes to management, like what kind of um, specific exercises are you going to recommend for this person? And so it came down to like, do I need to make him move in a very particular way? And, and the same concept came back up and I said, no, it's not so much about the particular aspects of movement here as it is, I want to find the right dosage to get him moving again in a way that is tolerable, that is getting him back towards his goal level of function, and preferably in the long term, getting him getting him beyond that. So I view not only the development of this you know pain issue that this person had as a dosage problem, but the way I'm going to get him back out of it as a dosage problem. And let's say we get him back to his baseline pain-free level of, of function, and suddenly he gets bitten by the iron bug and he wants to get super strong. How am I going to get him, you know, to where he wants to be long-term, it's also going to be finding the right dosage that he can tolerate and that generates the adaptations um, in him, the individual, right? Because we've talked before about this huge range of individual variation. If you give, you know, a, a thousand people the same, you know, three sets of eight or something like that on a program, you're going to see this big range of, ad of adaptive responses. You're going to see some freaks, you're going to see some pe people on average, and you're going to see some really low hypo responders, some people who may even get worse, whatever the case is. Uh, but if I adjust the dosage, um, then I am very likely to um, alter people's people's training response. And, and that is likely to be a more useful, more effective way to get the response I'm looking for compared with, you know, tweaking the, the movement selection in subtle ways or, or whatever the case is. There aren't magic exercises that I can <laughs> that I can get to get the training response as well as I can by tweaking the dosage of activity. So that's kind of like what prompted my thought process about this as like, for me, like this is a super important variable. And, and I get so few people who might come to me with a pain issue who want to consult who are like, yeah, this started hurting. And I think I was just doing too much for me at the time. Like that's, I wish <laughs> more people who came in would say that rather they come in, they say, oh, this started hurting. And I'm pretty sure it was my technique that I was, you know, that I moved wrong. And I have to go through and have this, this conversation. It would be a dream if more people were like, well, I was probably just doing too much for me myself at the time. I knew I had a lot of life stress, wasn't sleeping great. And I was, you know, the, the intensity, the volume, whatever was, was too high at the time. Of course, 
people who recognize that, <laughs> they can adjust it for themselves and then they don't come in and, and consult with us. So it's a, it's a concept that I wish that I, that hopefully we can make more pervasive and, and well understood yeah. uh, in this context. I also think it like from an injury risk standpoint, it, it like this becomes a very important concept. Um, the idea is like we as humans ha- have an adaptive potential that we do not know the upper boundary of. We do not know what the limit is that we can not only tolerate, but also like thrive in. We do know that we need to take, you know, stepwise sort of systematic progressive uh, approach to, to that, to get there. But it's like, yeah, I mean, the idea of deadlifting 800 pounds for somebody who doesn't deadlift at all seems like a Herculean task, you know, and you, there's no way you could ever get there. It's like, well, if you happen to be a hyper responder to resistance training and first you start deadlifting 200 pounds and then later it's 300 and 400 or 500, like you can get there. Right. Or like, Oh, I don't think I could ever tolerate running a marathon. It's like, well, first you're going to have to be able to run a mile and then it's two miles, whatever. It's like, if we, if we do this in an intelligent fashion, I don't know what the limits are. Uh, it's just the dosing becomes, becomes the key here. Uh, so yeah, I, I agree that the idea of training dose is probably the most important concept to training, but also, you know, the, the laws and the principles and the, you know, all the things we use to describe training, we just, uh, we don't have a good acronym, you know, for, for, (laughs) or, or a good set of rules for, for dose other than it needs, we need to match it to where the person's currently at. And able to tolerate, which you can only kind of determine retrospectively in a way like, oh, how did that work? Were they able to like thrive in that sort of with that sort of training dose? And then also did it work, right? But you can only do that retrospectively. And so it seemed, you know, the approach that we generally take is one that's risk averse and and cautious. It's like, well, we'll start a little bit on the low end um, from what I think is like max. Um, but I, I also think it's important to note like this minimum effective volume or minimum effective dose and max recoverable volume, max sort of effective dose. I think these things are dynamic. I think they're moving at all times, you know, based on stuff that your previous training, your current training, what's going on in your life. Um, and then, you know, factors like nutrition, sleep, you know, general outlook, et cetera. And so I think conceptually they can be useful if you're trying to discuss training, you know, theory or whatever, but the idea of like identifying your minimum effective dose or your max recoverable volume, it's like that has little utility because it's going to change and not just like over a block or over a year, but every single day, maybe every hour of every single day, like it's going to be different. You know, if I said, Austin, we're going to do your same exact training program right now, except you have to do it at 4.30 a.m. every morning. That's the only time you can train. (laughs) Well, the dose that you can tolerate at 4.30 in the morning is going to be a little bit different. You know, I would, I would expect anyway. So like, if you were like, can you help me program? I'd be like, well, we're going to cut down the training dose a little bit with this new sort of circadian or (laughs) chrono chrono training training (laughs) stressor. I don't, I don't don't know that these, these, um, variables are discreetly knowable uh, for most people. And I would certainly not, um, aim to determine them in such a way that like this, this person I'm going to label as their you know, dosage, their, their maximum is like X number of sets. And that's just like 
that's them because you're right. These are super, super dynamic things. I am quite confident that the number of, you know, sets of, you know, whatever exercise, be it deadlift or bench or, or laps in the pool or whatever the case is, has fluctuated wildly over the course of my training career for past, you know, whatever, 20 plus plus years of, of physical activity and stuff like that. Yeah. And, but again, you could apply this to nearly any activity if it's hitting golf balls, playing golf, riding moto, swimming, cycling, uh, you know, rec league soccer, you know, beat training BJJ or JITS, as the youths say, <laughs> like it, this, this applies to everything. And we're going to talk about it more on this podcast this is episode 196 with Dr. Austin Baraki. Uh, I think, I okay. think bef- just one, one more comment is something that we hear Dr. Miles say a lot, whether to his clients or, or on this topic when he's lecturing on, on podcasts and things like that is um, the different when he's, when he's talking to clients, there's, there's a few nice principles that I've actually adapted for myself too. He'll ask, he'll talk about um, preparing to do the thing that you're trying to do and then actually doing the thing that you've prepared for. Um, those kind of concepts are, are corollaries of one another, but they reflect this process of preparation and gradual, you know, progression of the, the dosage to the level that you're trying to get to. And then oftentimes with rehab clients, he'll distinguish the, the um, kind of uh, dosage of activity in a way where he asks the client to, to try to differentiate between what they can do and what they should do. Like, can I do another set versus should I do another set? And it really seems to be a helpful principle for his rehab clients. Um, but again, it's like I get internally, I, I'm able to mask it pretty well, but it's kind of frustrating how how poorly understood it is when we deal with people who anytime something goes off the rails or isn't working or something, it's like, well, um, it's probably because this uh, I need some kind of a special exercise. We've seen over the past couple of years in the powerlifting world, right? There have been fa- exercise-specific exercise fads at various times, right? There was like, what you remember the time? This was probably, I don't know, two years ago or so, or maybe a little longer when everybody was on the pit shark, like belt, shark, oh, yeah. belt, belt squats were like the new hotness at the time. You have to and, have and, it. Yeah. And, and there have been um, those kind of exercise fads from, from period to period. And, and everybody buys into this thinking that this exercise is going to have some like massive unique, benefit. and then of course they, they fade away. And ultimately it's like, what's the dosage of stress? And is that, you know, providing carryover to the person? Um, and, and ultimately it's probably that those exercises are po- being popularized um, by people who are hyper responders to that exercise towards the goal, right? They make it look really good because they're like, man, I, I was doing all these belt squats and my squat is huge. And so other people are like, well, it's the exercise. It's like, well, maybe they just found the right dosage that they're, that they're hyper responders to. And you need to do the same for yourself, regardless of what the specific movement is. Yeah. I'm more inclined to think that the training dose for an individual at a particular time, like when you're having one of those hot streaks where everything's yeah. going well yeah. and you're really, you're really amped to talk about your training because everything's <laughs> yeah. going great. Yeah. I, I'm more apt to think that, uh, the training dose has just matched what the person can tolerate and thrive in at the moment versus any particular exercise or series of exercises or combination of exercises within, within reason, of course. So, uh, we're going to break this up into like three separate categories as far as like how to adjust or determine training dose. Uh, we're going to talk about it, talk about it with respect to performance, uh, with respect to rehab, and then also with respect to uh, health. So with respect to performance, I mean, there's a wide variety of performance adaptations we could select for. If you're listening to the Barbell Medicine podcast, uh, you're probably most interested in getting strong, uh, getting larger muscles, so muscular hypertrophy and uh, cardiorespiratory fitness. And so I think the things here, the biggest like levers we have to pull um, have to do with volume. So that's sets times reps or for aerobic training or conditioning, uh, you talk about duration. So time and then intensity. So that'd be like a percent of one RM, uh, for example, in resistance training or like the 
how fast you're going relative to your max pace um, on a uh, conditioning piece. And then in resistance training, we have another unique sort of factor called proximity to failure. So how close are you to failure? So you could do 70% of your one RM and you could take that to one rep shy of failure. That's usually probably like 10 to 15 reps for most people, or you could do a set of five with it. And those both generate entirely different amounts of training stress and, and dose dosage. Um, it, the interesting thing, like with respect to strength and hypertrophy is that, and even to some extent, con- cardiorespiratory fitness, if, uh, uh, you're measuring it in a particular way, whether it be a VO2 max test on like an, a bike, you know, for example, uh, uh, or if you're doing it on a treadmill, um, the formulation of the training is pretty, pretty static here for powerlifting, for example, to get stronger, we know you're going to squat bench deadlift and do a bunch of variations thereof for bodybuilding, for example, hypertrophy. Well, we know you're going to train all the major muscle groups using a combination of compound and isolation exercises through a large range of motion. (laughs) And so it's, it's pretty much set. Yes, you can pick different exercises to accomplish those things, but it's It's relatively tight. Yeah. 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 Same, same thing with cardio respiratory fitness. Like, all right, you're going to run, you're going to cycle, you're going to erg, you're going to ski erg, you're going to whatever, but like, however you're testing, this is going to determine how good your training program was. And so, um, again, it's a fairly narrow band compared to some of these other things like rehab or health, for example. So in general, if you were to increase volume, increase intensity, get closer to failure, uh, all of those things ratchet up the training dose meaning you're just applying more training stress to the individual. And so I, I wouldn't look at this from like a single set or a single exercise or even a single training session. I would look at the entire training week and probably even uh, long, longer term, the projected training block. You're like, all right, I think I'm going to run this particular training mesocycle, this training block for anywhere between three to eight weeks, depending on how well I determine that it's working throughout that mesocycle. And so it's like on an average week, what's my volume, total volume look like? What's the average intensity of that volume? And what's my average proximity to failure for most of those sets? And it's like, there's got to be a difference if most of your volumes accumulated between 70 and 80%, or yeah, if most of your volumes between 70 and 80% uh, within three to four reps in reserve compared to the same amount of volume at the same intensity, but the proximity to failure is one or two. We would expect if all of that volume is done with an RIR reps in reserve of one to two or RP eight or nine or nine or 10 or eight or nine, it's going to be higher than if the RP is six or seven. And so our kind of, or at least I'll speak for myself and you can tell me if you agree with the, with me or not, we might find a point of disagreement. I, I don't think so, but we'll find out shortly here is that it doesn't have to be really, really high dose of training to generate an adaptation meaning. And what I mean by that is that the, uh, it doesn't have to necessarily feel as hard as you probably think it does. It doesn't all have to be super close to failure, super grindy, super, you know, beat you down, um, sort of efforts in order to get stronger. I think that total training dose is likely to be the same between when programs work or, 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 uh, like two different programs that work, but you can get there in different ways. And my preference would be for a lower, uh, sort of, uh, you know, fatigue type approach, um, on a day-to-day basis, meaning that you're a little bit further away from failure, meaning that your session RPE, your rating of fatigue after a session isn't super high. You're like, eh, that was a lot of work, but I feel 
fine. I don't feel wrecked, mate, you know, uh, things of that nature. But I think the training stress, you can get to the same level via different ways. Uh, and I, I think though, as you get closer to failure and the intensity is higher, that becomes a, a little bit narrower as far as like your safety margin for like, can I tolerate this? Can I thrive in this? It's just easy to kind of go over, go over. And if you do that often enough, uh, I think general badness can occur. Yeah. I mean, I, I think back to my last, you know, as you were saying, when people are on a tear or they're on a streak or things are going really well, I think back to the last time that was happening to me, you know, back in my powerlifting days, like whatever, a month, <laughs> a month ago and, and a previous, month ago. previous to that. <laughs> Things were going really well, benching in the you know 400s every week, deadlifting in the 700s most weeks, or or um, upper 600s and stuff like that. Things were were quite good. And when I think back on that, I think about how many DMs I got all the time of people asking what my exercises, my, my exercise selection was. What accessories are you doing, bro? <laughs> yeah, as if that's what was doing it. And and this is I, I didn't necessarily I wasn't really paying attention to it as much at the time as as in this context now I see it as a manifestation of the same thing what were your accessories you know show us the other lifts that you do and I'm like bro I don't think that me overhead pressing 135 pounds as in a supplemental movement is what's is what's doing this rather my overall programming I found a dose that I responded to and again I would not generalize that to anybody else because I talked about it because enough people asked about me my programming and stuff like that that you know, I would do my single, you know, my, my top single or whatever. And then I was doing like literally sets of three or four reps in like the 67 to 70% range, like yeah. not heavy mm -hmm. <laughs> from a powerlifting standpoint, still considered high intensity, like in the research realm. Uh, but, but doing a set of, you know, three or four at 68% is like what, 12 reps in river, <laughs> some, some, you know, bar speed was very high. I could have done that, you know, all day, but I was terminating the sets real early. And I just found that if I did that and did a bunch of sets of that, that it was the right dosage that generated, you know, nowhere near, uh, excessive fatigue, as you were just saying, and got the the response that I wanted. And I could have probably been doing any number of exercises, or I could have been doing entirely non-powerlifting specific exercises with that similar dosage and generated a pretty good adaptation towards that goal, towards towards those specific, you know, exercise performance uh, uh, related related outcomes. Um, so, so I think I'm with you for sure that you know dosage is super important and finding finding the approach to it that generates a good balance of of generating the the, the training stress and adaptations versus versus fatigue um, and that in the performance context where we're training towards very specific goals like powerlifting performance or weightlifting performance or if i think about you know being in the pool or if somebody like alan is running on the trail um, the formulation what that training looks like is going to be much more set right and, and it's interesting, obviously, now, since I'm spending a lot more time in the pool and I think about um, what my training looks like there and what it looked like while I was competing for, you know, almost 15 years in the pool. Nobody in that world is asking me, hey, man, like, what strokes are you doing in the pool? Yeah, <laughs> right? Right, it's like right, the selection, you know, what what drills are you doing? Overwhelmingly, it's, you know, your intensity, your set, your set structure, your overall, you know, per session volume, training volume. So it seems like in the, I don't know, maybe in the aerobic conditioning type world, the concepts of dosage are, are um, more well appreciated compared to in the strength training world. That's just completely, you know, I just made that up. I don't know if that's true or not hypothetical, but it could be. Uh, it would just be nice if we saw more appreciation for this and and less kind of sexy exercise, uh, <laughs> you know, emphasis um, as yeah. it pertains to outcomes. I think people just want like a formulaic type approach and it's like, all right, we could take the 
reps completed multiplied by the RPE, right? And then you'd have to have some sort of modifier for proximity to failure. And that would give you like a stress index number. And then for each set, you could have a stress index number. And then all of the sets completed in a workout, you could have, you could sum all those up and like, all right, that's the stress that I applied. And it's some number, it's unitless and it's made up and whatever. And then you could compare that over, you know, a training block, for example, and then correlate that well, given my time, that time in my life <laughs> that seemed to work very well. But, you know, it's interesting, a uh, few things from what you said. Yeah, when you were on your tear, that sort of training dose that you've identified that worked for you then, I don't know that I would have a strong inclination to return to that training dose unless things were very, very similar. And then we'd like, all right, well, seems like a reasonable thing to try, but you know, your life was different then and yeah, you're constantly no changing, constantly adapting <laughs> organism. And so no guarantees. Uh, the other, the other thing is like, and we see this all the time with respect to like dietary patterns when people are like, Oh, I cut this food out and added this back in. And so it's gotta be that, that thing. So yeah, you doing presses with 135 may not be the thing, but it's important to note what you weren't doing. You weren't doing heavy floor press for sets of 10 to RP nine, for example, yeah. or you weren't doing heavy <laughs> skull crushers or whatever. You were doing this other thing that had a particular dose that seemed to, within the confines of your entire program, seemed to work reasonably well at that time in your life. Um, so I think we can have a, gener a few general sort of heuristics here as far as volume, intensity, proximity, proximity to failure, all that stuff goes for like determining a decent baseline training dose. So with volume, we know that there's this kind of dose dependent relationship between training volume and whatever adaptations that you're seeking are, whether that be strength, whether that be hypertrophy, whether that be cardiorespiratory fitness. And what that means is that as the dose, uh, as the volume goes up, as the dose goes up, the adaptation magnitude seems to get bigger and bigger and bigger, uh, provided you can tolerate it. So unfortunately, I cannot tell you what like a minimum volume would be that's a good place to start versus a maximum volume like do not go pass go do not collect $200. The best sort of advice that I can give to you is whatever you're doing right now has some amount of volume of like work sets that you're doing. And I probably if I was changing a significant amount of programming variables, intensity, proximity to failure, exercise selection, etc, I probably would not change much from that. Meaning that if I my inclination was that the training dose was too low based on you're in an environment ripe for gains, your lifestyle, meaning your lifestyle set up for you, like you're sleeping well, eating well, et cetera, and you're just not making progress based on whatever adaptations are important to you. And this is assuming, again, that your training formulation, the exercise selection, rest periods, et cetera, are all kind of reasonable choices. Uh, at that point, I'd probably go up by 10%. I just go up a little bit just to see, you know, uh, does this, does this make a difference? And similarly, if we thought the training dose was too high because you were developing a bunch of, you know, little niggling injuries and, uh, you were kind of stale, you know, uh, stale on your training and, you know, things of that nature, I would reduce it by 10%, but I wouldn't make large changes is what I'm getting at. You're sort of trying to come in at some arbitrarily predetermined baseline of volume and then adjust from there. Uh, with respect to intensity, we've done a number of podcasts discussing intensity, the progressive loading one, our pro we've got now three additional programming specific podcasts out there. The idea for strength training is that, yeah, most of your volume work should kind of occur between 70 and 80% ish with error bars either way, probably a little bit lower uh, is where I would have a longer error bar, you know, 65%, 60%. You can do some reps there uh, for most of your volume work, skill work with in particular for powerlifting is probably going to be higher 88%, 90% and above for maybe singles as you need them. 
Uh, but that's kind of going to be determined by what adaptations you're seeking. If that's that's for powerlifting, for hypertrophy work, well, it doesn't really matter what the intensity is provided you're getting somewhere near failure. So it could be 30%, 40%, 50%, 60%, 70%. The idea is if you're getting close in that four to five RIR reps in reserve, uh, so RP five, six or higher, it's probably heavy enough to do the thing you want it to do for that, for that goal. Um, and then the final consideration is proximity to failure. So you have a wide variety of choices. You could do stuff at RP6, RP7, RP8, RP9, which correlates to RIR 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Um, our thought is that if you're doing stuff at RP6, 7, somewhere in there, it's probably close enough to failure and it's probably heavy enough to do to, to make the adaptations, uh, generate the adaptations that you want, with the exception being maybe isolation work in a bodybuilding specific sort of context. Yeah, maybe you go full send and take those to failure. You're doing curls, triceps, press downs, calf work or whatever. Maybe that stuff needs to be like RP8, 9, 10 to work a little bit better than RP5, 6, or 7. But that's just a hedge. And the data right now is on untrained individuals doing isolation work. And I'm not terribly convinced. I just feel like yeah, maybe we saw some signal there. I just think don't think it's like a huge signal. For cardiorespiratory fitness stuff, yeah, same sort of volume dose-dependent uh, relationship between the volume and the the outcome. So improvements in things like VO2 max, um, the intensity. Uh, there's a wide variety of intensities you can you can choose from. Um, my general approach is like this. Uh, uh, we, it's like a, a double-sided tail. You can do lower and slower, and you can do faster and shorter to try to like hone in on whatever cardiorespiratory fitness kind of goal that you have. Um, but the point is that you would start at a total like weekly training volume. That is something you can tolerate and almost kind of maintain that for a few weeks before jumping up to a higher amount. Um, the idea is that the dosage is correct here. So it's like when people want to start running or whatever, I'm like, Oh, have, have you been doing any running before? They're like, nope, no running in my adult life. And, I, and I'm like, okay, so I want to get your cardiorespiratory fitness base built. And I also want to respect your values here with respect to wanting to run. Uh, so we're going to run maybe once a week. And it's going to be like a run walk. The idea is like we got a, some way to either detect your heart rate or use RPE uh, where you can only run and keep your heart rate between 120, 130. If it goes above that, you got to walk. And you're going to do that for, we may, might start the dose really low, 15 minutes, 20 minutes. But then on other sessions, it's like, yeah, we're actually going to get on a stationary bike or an actual bike or an erg of some sort. And you're going to, we're going to build your cardiorespiratory fitness in ways that aren't running, that aren't, you know, don't have all these ground reactive forces in order to sort of, yep, we're going to build cardiorespiratory fitness, but we're not going to make the dose so high uh, on this novel movement that is like, you know, has the potential to um, outstrip your current your current training, uh, that's, tolerances. That's kind of been my approach getting back in the pool. I mean, I contrast the dosage of training that I do now or have been doing over the past few months compared to what I did when I was training at my peak, like in college time, I would have been swimming, you know, out anywhere from, you know, on average, probably eight times a week, sometimes nine. And each session would be anywhere from 5,000 to 7,000 yards per session, which is a fair amount as far as dosage. And then when I got back in the pool most recently, I was going like twice a week and I would do 500 yards per, per session. Uh, so it's way less. And now at this point, I'm doing probably two to three sessions a week. And then I'll go, you know, upwards of maybe 1500, um, which is still super low compared to what I was doing at my peak, but it's gradually increased a little bit. And I feel better 
or at least not um, more taxed now doing this compared to when I was doing 500 when I just started. In other words, I've been able to do more and do it faster at the same kind of like relative effort, which is the sign of improvement. Yeah. Yep. Uh, Austin, you want to talk about training dose for rehab? Like how do you want to compare and contrast that to how sure. you think yeah. about that in performance? Yeah. So, so in rehab, I mean, I think that, um, ultimately a lot of people that come to us for rehab purposes ha do have task specific goals they're trying to get back to, like if they want to get back to competitive powerlifting or weightlifting or, or some other kind of sporting activity. Um, but in, on the broader scale, like population wide, um, people tend to not have that. And so as a result, um, the formulation, which we've talked about in terms of things like exercise selection, is way more broad and dynamic and doesn't need to be particularly specific in the rehab context. And that even includes people who are training for a goal. When you come into the rehab process, you can still do super general, nonspecific stuff. Oftentimes we do that deliberately with people to tear them away from their you know, beloved uh, competition-specific movements, even for a short period of time. Um, to get some positive momentum going from a rehab standpoint. So the first big contrast is that the formulation as it pertains to exercise selection is way broader, way more dynamic, um, and is much more individualized based on the person's symptoms, like what particular body area hurts and how we want to you know, target that or involve that from a, from a training standpoint. So we have loads and loads and loads of options. The weirdest exercises that I have ever prescribed, the weirdest exercises that you or anybody on our rehab team have ever prescribed are typically in a rehab context. Doing things where people's initial response is like, what in the world is this? Can you send me a YouTube video? I have no idea how to do this. That's usually where that comes up. So broader, less restricted formulation in terms of exercise selection. And then when it comes to how we modify the, the dosage, typically, you know, all roads, at least up front, lead to reducing the load uh, and the intensity. And we do that in various ways with people. Most commonly, you know, in our rehab type approaches, that involves things like slowing down the tempo, be it in the eccentric phase, concentric phase, or both of a movement, um, and then bumping up the rep target, um, whereas somebody might be used to doing ones and threes and fives and things like that in their training. Instead, we're going to be doing eights and twelves and fifteens, um, because if you do a set of 15 with a three count or a six count tempo in both directions, it is going to be light no matter what exercise <laughs> it is. And that's just a way of kind of putting the reins on somebody and, and, and pulling back on them. And so, again, like we have folks who come in for rehab and they might say, you know, I think that I just need to fix my technique on this movement and my pain will go away. And it's like that is almost never the case um, when it comes to people who like they want to adjust their positioning slightly and maintain the same load on the bar. For example, if they if they squatted 500 and they're in one position, they want to tweak the position a little bit and squat the same 500 and think it's not going to hurt that I don't know that I've ever really seen that happen in a, in a convincing way. Um, rather we typically need to modify loading and we have a bunch of ways to do that. And sometimes if the person is just super stubborn with getting the load to where we want it to find that kind of tolerable dose that we need to find for somebody from a rehab standpoint, then the squats going out the window. Um, and we're going to be doing something else entirely. Um, but this is can be a difficult conversation, particularly either with people who are super attached to exercises or people who think that there are uh, better or worse exercises or like magic exercises for a particular pain state. So some people... Um, you know, I, I would say less refined uh, clinicians re from a rehab standpoint uh, might have a formulaic approach to say, oh, you have, you know, pain in this area. This is my magic exercise for that particular pain syndrome, regardless of the person who, who walks through the door and what their goals are and things like that. That's not really the right move, in our opinion, or how we approach it. Um, and then finally, there are also people who think that there are um, not magic exercises for rehab, but some exercises that are inherently 
bad or harmful or stressful or dangerous or something like that, right? So like the people who claim that no matter what, deadlifts are bad for your back or something like that, rather than recognizing that there's a pretty big spectrum of dosage here, right? So we can take the dosage all the way down to like, quote unquote, deadlifting a pencil off the floor <laughs> is uh, is not going to be inherently dangerous. It is a dose. It is a dose of deadlift on the order of a few grams, but it is a dose and that can be scaled all the way up to, you know, 500 kilos, uh, depending on who you are in this world and what your training background is and where you're at at a given time. So we tend to put way less emphasis on the specific exercise, either as a magic exercise that will help somebody or as an inherently dangerous dangerous exercise that'll harm somebody and put way more emphasis on, okay, what is the dosage um, that you were doing around the time of this, say, pain or injury compared to what you had habitually been doing? And if there's a big discrepancy there, then that's probably a pretty good explanation for why this kind of uh, issue onset. And then we need to get you back under a tolerable threshold in terms of dosage, regardless of what the movement is, and work you back towards what your goal is in a more progressed, you know, uh, graded fashion so that we have prepared you for what you're trying to do and that ultimately you're doing the thing that you've prepared for. Yeah. I, I think the important thing to take away from that is that the training dose while you're going through an injury and the rehab process should be the same as the training dose that you would otherwise be well-suited for at that time if you were not injured. The whole point was that if if the training dose was disproportionate to your current tolerance level, well, that may have been an instigating factor in this pain experience that you're having and the reason why we're in this sort of rehab situation. But it doesn't mean that the training, if the training dose was fine, you kind of got unlucky. Well, the, the training dose is going to be about the same. It's just going to be different. We're going to make it up differently, different movements, different ranges of motion, different tempos, uh, you know, and that may be shifted around instead of it just being a type of squat or squat pattern. It may be something completely, well, it might feel silly to you, but the dose itself is going to remain pretty similar if it was appropriate before. If it was inappropriate before, whether that be low or high, well, we're going to fix it. It gives us an opportunity to kind of slow things down and, and kind of adjust as necessary. But I think when people conceptually are going through like what is hallmark of a pain and rehab sort of training block it's low dose training dose is low low stress whatever and it's like mm, it's just different it's different because if it's underdosed you're not going to get anything out of it this is not going to work now you know time tends to heal all all wounds here and things regress back to the mean and so you may get lucky uh, by doing that uh, a few times, but as far as like taking an active approach in you, you getting better, well, the, we got to make sure the training dose is appropriate and it can't be too low anymore that it can be too high. And that also applies in the rehab world. So, okay. Last thing, how to adjust training dose for health. Now, the way I think about this to start out with my goal is for all individuals by hook or by crook, let's at least meet the physical activity guidelines for adults. Not that I think that they're like, incredibly special and like well thought out, you know, throughout it's for every person that's ever walked this earth. I just think they're reasonable targets, right? Resistance train twice a week at a minimum, uh, do X amount of conditioning work to get that 500 to a thousand met minutes. Also, do you know, there was a bunch of questions on our Facebook page. They're like, all right, well, if I, if I'm doing deadlifts and deadlifts are eight mets and I do deadlifts for 50 minutes, that's, you know, 400 met minutes mm -hmm. of activity. I'm like, yeah, but not of conditioning. So <laughs> that's a resistance training. So yeah, I, I, again, I don't think that they're perfect that these guidelines, are, but I think that is my target for most people where that represents enough physical activity that you're not suffering or at significant risk of all of the disease burden that we typically see from insufficient activity. 
I think if someone's meeting or exceeding the physical activity guidelines, I'm unlikely to note um, a number of diseases or disease processes that occur due to insufficient activity because they're realistically, they're exercising an, enough and not a lot of people are doing this. So that's, that's the other thing. Um, so yeah, as far as how do I adjust the training dose for health, my main lever to pull is training volume. I am far less concerned with intensity um, unless it was just wildly inappropriate or whatever sort of self-selected training program the person was doing before. But if I can increase somebody's training volume uh, with respect to uh, resistance training, so now they're going to do three days a week or they're going to do more uh, conditioning to where they're exceeding the you know 1,500 minutes per week, um, all good. We see, again, this dose-dependent relationship between exercise, volume, and health uh, uh, sort of health uh, benefits, uh, whether that's blood pressure lowering potential, whether that's glucose uh, control, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, my only my only thing here, and I'll get your opinion on this, Austin, before we wrap this up, is that if the training is not making people stronger, and we've seen this in a few studies, it might not uh, improve their health as much as if it was. Right. We've seen that in a few studies with respect to blood pressure lowering and glucose control. It's like the people who got stronger seem to have a bigger decrease in their blood pressure or more impressive control of their blood sugar. And we kind of hypothesize that, okay, whatever the sort of is happening in the black box of the human body, like you put exercise in and outcomes, you know, all these adaptations, whatever's happening in there is also applying to these sort of, you know, uh, body wide systems that improves health. Um, do you like how does that apply here like it what if somebody just adds volume but it's not making them stronger like how do you think that applies to their health trajectory yeah i mean there's certainly diminishing returns beyond a certain point i don't think anybody would dispute that and there's probably a a, a, a point where that kind of flatlines although i think very few to almost nobody is is practically reaching that point that that uh, territory in in the real world i think that people who demonstrate really robust strength responses to training um, that itself can be a proxy for somebody who is likely to respond in many, many other ways, uh, and particularly to respond robustly in many other ways. Um, and so that's not surprising that we see those who get a big strength response might also get more pronounced, be it blood pressure lowering or, or whatever the case is. The converse situation where somebody might be doing more but getting less of an impact um, is an interesting scenario. Um, although there are some, you know, some other uh, papers out there, particularly one that has a very pro provocative title that we've talked about before here and, and elsewhere and at our seminar and things like that, that the title is There Are No Non-Responders to Resistance Exercise Training. And this concept, this, this, this paper argues basically that, um, you know, this idea of a non-responder, somebody who just does not adapt, right? And we've made the case before that every like living organism has the capacity to adapt and, and that's like a hallmark. It's necessary for, you know, life. So, if you have a study that provides an exercise intervention and finds no adaptive response, the most likely scenario here is that they are not measuring enough variables. In other words, the more variable, the more outcome variables you measure, the more things that you look at, like, is this getting better? Is this getting better? Is this getting better? The more of those that you check, um, the more likely 
to practically guaranteed that you are going to find something that somebody is uh, manifesting improvement in or adapting to, even if it is not strength, or perhaps it is not a super robust blood pressure response, whatever the case is, it is there is something that is adapting um, or, or improving as a result of this. And so perhaps, you know, that can inform decision making if the person is doing this for fun, and they don't really care about any of those things. And they just want to say, like, I'm getting better at something, then then that's cool. But definitely, if um, their goals are be it muscular hypertrophy, or strength development, or if their primary goal is health and lowering their blood pressure, then definitely that's room for more experimentation, uh, be it with different approaches to generating that that dosage. I still think that it is going to be unlikely that, you know, changing an exercise selection is going to be the, the the make or break kind of thing for somebody that somebody is just not getting stronger. And then if you change them from, you know, as we're saying, a, a pin squat to a paw squat, suddenly it's going to blow up. Or if somebody's blood pressure is not coming down while they're doing a bunch of aerobic conditioning on a treadmill, and then you put them on a rower that with the same dosage and intensity that suddenly it's going to tank their blood pressure, like I think that's pretty unlikely. Um, so I would still be looking at different ways to generate the, um, the dosage, uh, be it more or less or just kind of different. Maybe I'm swapping instead of doing high intensity interval stuff, they're doing more lower intensity, steady state stuff, whatever the case is, um, would still be my, my bias is, is messing with dosage in that situation, but remaining confident that, you know, if I'm imparting uh, this stressor to this person, there is something that they are responding to. It may be what their goal is. It may not be what their goal is. And, and the, the, the overarching approach of programming is, Hey, we need to find the dosage that makes the person respond in the way that they want, um, to the extent that that's possible or feasible for them. Yep. And then from a health perspective, I want them to do as much of it as possible. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, last thing is how to incorporate new things. So adjusting the training dose. So we see this all the time. People, new rec recreational sports. Uh, BJJ comes to mind only because it seems like, I mean, we got a pretty dude heavy Facebook group <laughs> and dude heavy DMs. And they're like, oh yeah, I started, you know, what's the best training program for BJJ? And it's like, do you compete? in bjj or any sort of thing and you know right now oh no i'm just starting and it's like okay great uh, usually what happens is people get bit by the bug and i get it you you do something fun and, and whatever and then you, you do it once and you're like i need to do this as much as possible i want to do it three times a week four times a week or whatever and it's like well are you prepared to do that at this point and so my preference would be for example if someone's getting a bjj or they're like you know jordan's talking about all this motocross stuff i want to get into moto and it's like cool man i'm pumped pump for you or austin's talking about swimming i want to get into swimming great all, all good uh, i would start lower than you think that you should with respect to dosing and then gradually take that up over time as you get more and more experience and feedback with how it actually affects you in relation to everything else that's going on in your life, not just physical activity wise. And so my preference would be if you're going to do BJJ, for example, start out once a week, once a week where you have like no restrictions, just do the class, do the thing, whatever. And then if you want to you like you need to do more, that's, just, oh, I have, must have it, make it by design, a low stakes, low intensity, low, like low yeah. uh sort of demand uh kind of training session where maybe it's just you're practicing positions skills uh some sort of analysis wh whatever it does it, I, you know I'm, I'm not a bjj expert i don't know like what the hell i'm talking about with respect <laughs> to that the, the whole point is that it doesn't always have to be rolling at rp nine or ten you know, and, there's it, a and it should probably not be that at all when you're introducing this thing. Same as when both of us got back into our some of our conditioning modalities. When I got back in the pool, it was very slow. Um, when you got on your bikes and ergs and things like that, very slow. That's the way to start. Slower than you think you need to start for sure. Yep, yep. So that would be my preference. Uh, I'm gonna read you. A, I'm gonna read you a, a, a tweet, 
And I uh, just want to get your response to each line. Now, this is a one, two, three, four, five, sixth line tweet. I'm going to read like you. A, is this like a soliloquy or something? Or what, what no, it? no, I'm going to read you a six <laughs> line tweet. And then I'm just going to get your response okay. to each line. This is putting you on the spot. And I know how you love this. And then yeah, we'll, sure. we'll end this podcast. <laughs> Lifting weights will fix your testosterone. Nope. That's absolutely not true. <laughs> so just right off the bat, we know this is going absolutely nowhere. And on average, if you if if you are uh, previously untrained and you start resistance training, you can see a small potential bump in testosterone that is fleeting. But most time, people who train very consistently have like below average levels of testosterone. Yeah. Anyway, that's a whole other thing. Uh, going on walks will fix your anxiety. Uh, I don't. I wouldn't necessarily guarantee that broadly. Anxiety is very heterogeneous. For some people, that may be a beneficial, like meditative kind of thing. Um, I'm thinking about other people who might live in a place where going out for a walk in their neighborhood may be the thing, the source of anxiety. Yeah. So, would not say that broadly. Yeah, I don't think that it treats anxiety. Certainly, like the uncertainty and and the worries and the worries and, and you know. And I, but I, I'm a fan of walking. Just jet, but like as a primary treatment for anxiety uh, <laughs> seems incomplete time in the sun will fix your mood what <laughs> hey these are claims that are being made also some people enjoy being outside some people don't uh there, there's variation there i don't you... think you know photons are uh, are uh, necessarily uh you know mood boosting inherently so you get a few double stranded dna breaks from ultraviolet radiation that's, true. that's, true. that's good for your mood <laughs> uh sufficient sleep will fix your low energy uh depends on why you got low energy sure I mean, I have yeah. symptomatic anemia with a hemoglobin of six or something. I can, I'm sleeping all day and I still feel terrible. <laughs> like fatigue have, is a very complex thing that can come from myriad sources. I have sleep apnea and, you know, sleeping more is not the answer. Yeah. Sleep is very important. And it is the first thing we ask about when people complain of fatigue or report fatigue to us. Um, but there are a lot. This is obviously, you know, designed for Twitter. Um hyper simplified to the point of being incomplete and therefore pretty wrong in a large uh, uh, proportion of cases. The right diet will fix your body. That's gibberish. I agree 100%. That doesn't mean anything. So. <laughs> <laughs> and the final line, there are no magic pills that will help you if you can't get the basics right. Um, I mean, I can think of numerous medical conditions that are curable with a pill that you cannot do anything from a lifestyle standpoint like i cml comes see to i mind. was just thinking of cml <laughs> yeah or like anemia for example yeah. you know yeah. like um i Things just are complicated turns out so <laughs> yeah when people tweet stuff like this and it does get a lot of traction i'm like you guys you you are all idiots yes like yes. just <laughs> this thing's got ten thousand seven hundred and fifteen likes sick <laughs> we're all in trouble all right that's been episode 196 of the barbell medicine podcast again a big shout out to dr austin baraki for joining us uh for all the rest of our previous podcasts uh you can check the link in the description below again if you want to join us at a live in-person seminar i've linked that in the description below uh before you guys go anywhere please leave us a five-star rating and a review it really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance and health and fitness for everyone here at barbell medicine i'm dr jordan feigenbaum thanks for listening we'll see you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Mm -hmm.